So now for today's program, uh, Dr. Gregory D. Smithers, an associate professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University, specializes in Native American history. He's the author of several books, including The Cherokee Diaspora, An Indigenous History of Migration, Resettlement, and Identity, about which Greg spoke here a few years ago. And his newest book, and the subject of today's lecture, Native Southerners, Indigenous History from Origins to Removal. So please give a warm welcome to our friend, Greg Smithers. Let me first begin by acknowledging the traditional <laughs> landowners of this region, uh, members of the Powhatan Chiefdom and the Chickahominy people. Uh, and thank you, Andy, for that uh, kind introduction, uh, and to Graham Dozier, who uh, organized uh, today's lecture. Thank you very much. It's, it's much appreciated, and it's, it's lovely to be back here um, at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I hope I got that right. <laughs> I'm going to begin today by talking just a little bit about the artwork on the cover of my new book. Um, this is a piece uh, by Chief Terry Saul. He's a, uh, well, was, he's passed, uh, now he's walked on. Um, Chief Teresal was a Chickasaw and Choctaw. Uh, he was born in 1921 in Oklahoma. Uh, anyone who knows anything about uh, that part of the world in the 1920s and 30s will know it wasn't an easy place uh, to be Native American. Uh, and so Chief Teresal grew up seeing lynchings on a fairly regular basis, lynchings of both Native and African American people. Uh, he grew up experiencing uh, impoverishment and um, vicious racism on an almost daily basis. And so you had to be tough, you had to be resilient, and you had to have something of a sense of humor. And it seems that Saul's parents did have such a sense of humor uh, because they, they named their child Chief which utterly confused white people uh, throughout Oklahoma as he grew to manhood in the 1930s and 40s. Chief Terry Saul was never actually a chief of uh, the Chickasaw or Choctaw peoples, but he did grow up to become uh, a wonderful uh, Native American artist. Uh, he served briefly in uh, the Second World War, and when the war was over, GI Bill helped him attend the University of Oklahoma where he pursued his education and passion for art. Um, and it's at the University of Oklahoma uh, that uh, Chief Terry Saul uh, learned the rudiments of cubism and surrealism, um, artistic uh, methodologies and, and trends that were very popular uh, in the early 20th century. These helped uh, Chief Terry uh, engage with traditional Native stories that he'd grown up hearing relatives and, and uh, family friends telling him about. Uh, in particular, surrealism, which influences this piece here, uh, which is entitled <coughs> Warrior. Um, it's a piece that sort of evokes uh, an, an attempt on the part of this warrior to sort of step back, to find a portal, a passage uh, to another a series of stories, another time and place, uh, another level of consciousness, all themes that are very much in keeping with 
uh, the traditions of surrealism, anyone who knows anything about their art history, um, and also very much in keeping with uh, many of the, the, the narrative, oral narrative traditions uh, within Native culture, particularly the Native South. Uh, and so it is a different set of stories that I'm going to share with you today, um, a different set of stories that place uh, the American South as we know it today in a very different light. I'm going to use a different lens to talk about the history of the Southeast. And so some of this may come as something of a shock. Um, what stories, what stories do we emphasize when we cease to take a Euro-American perspective for granted and we look at Southern history through an indigenous series of lenses? What stories matter? What events matter? And as we'll see over the next 35 minutes or so, uh, there's a very different perspective uh, that emerges. It sometimes overlaps with a Euro-American and African-American <coughs> perspective on Southern history, uh, but it is nonetheless uh, a different perspective that Native people bring to this history. And I should begin by just emphasizing, and this will really rock your socks, that Virginia is not part of the South. What? <laughs> At least not all of Virginia. Uh, now, uh, the, south, the southern culture zone uh, that Native Americans called home prior to contact and indeed after contact with Europeans begins roughly around the Nottoway River uh, among the Nottoway peoples uh, and in what is today southwestern Virginia. Um, that was uh, traditionally Cherokee hunting uh, lands. Uh, and it's in those hunting lands that Cherokee uh, warriors in particular uh, often had contact with the Monacan in, in central Virginia. Um, so the geography of the South changes uh, when we take a native perspective uh, on Southern history. And this is something that I developed and explained in more detail uh, in the book. In addition, also the stories and the way we talk about the stories of the South change as well. Um, let me just sort of talk about someone who you probably all have heard of before, uh, a young girl uh, in the 17th century by the name of Pocahontas. Um, she's often thought of as a friend to the English. Marries John Rolfe, saves John Smith. Um, these are mythologies. These become historical truisms over time that become embedded in the mythology of not only Virginia history, Southern history, American history. And they tell us far more about European Americans and the history of colonialism than they do about Madawaka and Pocahontas, the Pamunkey and the Powhatan peoples. And they tell us a story really about American national myth-making. And it's those mythologies that I'm trying to work against here uh, in this book. I'm trying to not necessarily throw all of those mythologies out with the bathwater, as it were, uh, but to provide a little bit of historical context from a native perspective. And the reason I want to do that, and the reason I want to share some of those stories with you uh, today, is because they've been for too long relegated to the margins of American history. 
for Native people in particular, not just in the Native South, but elsewhere, stories are hugely important to constructing a sense of community, of kinship, politics. And I just want to read to you very quickly, if you'll indulge me, the first paragraph of the book, because this underscores where I'm coming from and how I'm trying to tap in to the importance of stories in Native American culture and history. Stories matter. Stories tell us about our ancestors, about ourselves, and about our communities. Storytelling is a gateway to meaning. Stories help us to understand our individual and collective experiences, and they add layers of meaning to a sense of place or home. In short, stories inform our worldviews and our identities. This is particularly true for Native people. It's not to say that stories remain static and don't change. Quite the opposite occurs. Stories do indeed evolve, change, and are innovated over time. And we see that uh, throughout the Native South, um, from the time of contact and even through uh, to the present. Now there are many stories that I could share with you uh, this afternoon. Uh, I'm going to uh, jump into the year 700 uh, and begin by talking about uh, stories that the architecture of the Native South, um, what stories, what messages do they convey to us? And the first thing you notice is that the map of the South looks a little bit different. It roughly overlaps with what we might recognize as the Southeast today. So what you see on the screen there are representations of different culture zones throughout uh, the South, Mississippi, and up into what we might call today uh, the Midwest. Uh, and the dots you see represented on the screen there, they are indicative of some of the best and, and most thoroughly studied archaeological sites. And it's one site in particular that I'm going to emphasize this afternoon. It's this place, a very special place. Um, this is Moundville. Uh, Moundville is located just outside of what is today Tuscaloosa in Alabama. It's a society that grew in prosperity and influence, regional influence, um, by about the year 1000 in the Common Era. Uh, we begin to see uh, population growing and growing quite dramatically uh, at the site that archaeologists have referred to as Moundville uh, over the next century, so that by 1150 in the Common Era, uh, we see monumental architecture has emerged. Many hundreds, possibly thousands of people call this place home. Um, it's a diverse economy that they, these people are cultivating, uh, an exchange economy with outside native communities, and a society that engages in both warfare and diplomacy uh, with non-kin members. So by about 1150, Moundville has begun to enter into an era 
that will last about 200 or so years of quite incredible prosperity and cultural productivity. Stories uh, told both orally with dance and with architecture uh, begin to mark the landscape. The mounds that you see still to this day at the Moundville sites uh, told the story in and of themselves. These mounds indicated uh, a sense of social rank and order within the society of Moundville. There were approximately 29 mounds that were constructed. Uh, they were constructed to last. Um, the, this is truly monumental architecture uh, that we're talking about here. I was mentioning to someone just when I came in this afternoon talking about mounds uh, and mound construction throughout the southeast. Uh, when you drive in to the Moundville State Park, your, your breath is taken away. It's truly phenomenal that this, these soaring structures built so many years ago now, uh, almost a millennia ago, uh, still, still stand. That was indeed the intentions uh, of those chiefs and elders who had these quite extraordinary structures uh, constructed. They were constructed to last, they were constructed to present to outsiders a sense of the strength and power of the Moundville community. Uh, and they were designed to remind people who resided uh, at Moundville of their place uh, within this society. <coughs> Chieftain societies dominated the southeast from about 700 uh, through into the 15th century. Uh, and they begin to decline uh, and shift into a new phase of uh, their history uh, at about the same time that Europeans begin invading uh, the southeastern culture zone. But before that happens, the people of Moundville are enjoying a three-century-long period of prosperity, just as other uh, mound-building societies throughout the southeast are enjoying. These societies look, for all intents and purposes, uh, to be well-established and, and utterly permanent in nature, in not only their architecture, but their social uh, structures. But this sense of rigidity, permanence, it actually belies the malleability, fluidity that exists within native communities throughout uh, the southeast. Mound-building societies, indeed chiefdom societies, as we ethno-historians um, refer to them, you know, sort of imprecise scholarly language, um, these societies ranged in degree of sophistication and political uh, structure, but what they all had in common was this dynamism in which nothing could be taken for granted. Relationships had to be continually cultivated, nurtured, and people had to live up to ideals of reciprocity to ensure both balance and harmony within a community 
like Moundville, but also to ensure balance and harmony of economic and diplomatic relationships with societies outside of your immediate kin community. So we do see members of these societies break away. Uh, they break away and they form their own societies for a variety of reasons. Uh, it may be that so these societies, many of which grow very quickly, um, people on the peripheries of these societies feel marginalized. That should sound familiar to some of us. Marginalized people don't like really being marginalized, do they? And so they break off and they try and form their own societies. They renew kinship relationships or cultivate new kinship relationships with other communities. Um, this was happening before European contact and it continues to happen at a greater pace and rapidity after Europeans begin invading through the southeastern culture zone in the 16th century. Today, we commemorate sites like Moundville as examples of indigenous social, cultural, political civilization, all of which pre-exists uh, European colonization. And many of these societies, uh, far and away more prosperous and culturally sophisticated, socially dynamic than many of their European counterparts, London, Paris, Madrid. These are extraordinary places. So they fell though, as I mentioned, because they're deceptively fragile. Perhaps better put, they're more dynamic than outer appearances give them credit for. Moreover, native southerners covet and value quite highly the constant cultivation of, of relationships and alliances. Additionally, factors such as climate change began to impact native communities throughout the Southeast and throughout uh, East and North America uh, during the 13, 14, and into the 1500s. And those impacts, the impacts of climate change had, a, had a, a quite marked impact on agriculture and economic activity and were exacerbated uh, by the disease and violence then uh, that tended to follow Europeans, Spaniards, the French, the English, uh, and others. And so what emerges are new societies. Just as native people had always cultivated and innovated their cultural traditions, their sense of kinship and community, how do we cultivate and hold on to a sense of balance, harmony? How do we maintain tradition that often requires change, innovation, adaptability? And so that's what we begin to see occurring on a more regular basis and at a more rapid speed uh, from the 16th century. In the book, I refer to a term that uh, we ethnohistorians use, anthropologists use it also uh, fairly regularly, 
The term is coalescence. Uh, what begins to happen is people like those people from the once powerful Moundville civilization begin to migrate throughout the southeastern culture zone. They become refugees, migrants, looking for a new home, new place to settle, new relationships and kinship bonds to form. They innovate, they adapt, they coalesce with other groups of people who are also experiencing the same sense of displacement, um, of rootlessness, and they recreate their roots in the context of these many changes that I've alluded to. Climate change, political uh, structures, fissuring and breaking apart, the arrival of very rude Europeans, often very violent Europeans, and the impacts of disease. What we see developing then over the course of the 16th century and into the 17th century throughout uh, the native south are dynamic, multilingual, multi-ethnic communities in which old traditions are reinterpreted anew and new kinship societies form around town and regional identities. These communities come over time to be known, you may know some of these names, the Cherokees, the Creeks, Chickasaws, the Choctaws, the Lumbees, the largest native population in the United States today, still without federal recognition, by the way, and the Catawba people, formed out of the core of the mighty Massawaw peoples of the southeast, neighbors to the Cherokees. Um, the Catawba people formed relationships with both uh, the fragments of older uh, chieftain-era societies, uh, and they formed relationships with other new societies that are coalescing and coming into existence as political forces, military forces, over the course of the 16th and 17th centuries. You get a sense of those relationships from the map that you see <coughs> on the screen here. This is a map that dates to 1721. Um, it is the Catawba deerskin map. Uh, at the center of the map are the Nassau people uh, who form the political and cultural core of the Catawba. And what you see branching off from that central um, political identity uh, are these lines, these paths connecting other communities, um, native communities that have taken shape throughout the southeast. Uh, and also, um, you might see down the bottom here, that sort of square box, the Virginians. Virginians are on probation. Let me tell you why. Virginians were intrusive. Uh, they were rude. They tended to break uh, agreements that they had formed with native southerners, both trade and diplomatic agreements. Good thing none of this has continued. <laughs> <clears throat> and they were violent. Um, and the violence ran the sort of spectrum 
from sexual violence against uh, indigenous girls and women uh, to violence against uh, young men and warriors and uh, indeed uh, peaceful communities who found themselves suddenly um, abutting what Virginians called their backcountry settlements. So for that very reason, um, Native people didn't turn Virginians and Carolinians, the English in the, in the Carolinas, away, but they kept a very close eye on them, and they tried to remind these Europeans that they had to constantly uh, live up to the responsibilities uh, of the agreements that they had forged, the reciprocity that was at the core of identities, economic and politically in nature throughout the Southeast and elsewhere throughout Eastern Native North America. You wanted to ensure then that you remained, uh, you kept, I should say, the white path of peace open. Because if these paths were to become broken or you didn't find yourself on this map, then chances are you were at war with, in this case, the Catawba. And so it's very likely that Catawba chiefs present the Virginia English with a copy of this deerskin map to remind them of their responsibilities that they have entered into with the Catawba people. Lest you become delinquent Virginians on your agreements, there's a very real risk of you being erased from this map. So Native peoples then, in their cartography, the stories they're telling with their cartography are stories of relationships, of friendships that need to be constantly nurtured, um, lest those relationships splinter apart and end in war. This map that you see on the screen here tells a similar story. This is a Chickasaw uh, deerskin map from about 1728. Uh, again, it places, in this case, the Chickasaw at the center of the story and indicates, tells us the story of who we have diplomatic and economic friendships with. Can't emphasize this strongly enough. You want to maintain the white path of peace and you do that not simply by speaking without talking, that is, writing. English did that a lot, and it didn't work out so well. Although Native people did want treaties, uh, they did push for them, and they did lobby for terms favorable to their communities, but you had to demonstrate through actions, through words. You had to perform the relationship on a regular basis. Very important. So, some of the stories I've shared with you thus far reveal how Native American history, and most especially the history of Native Southerners, is not a static story. It's very much a, a dynamic, moving story. There's not one singular version of Native history in the Southeast. There is not one singular Native American identity in the Southeast. There is not simply one way 
then as now to be a authentic Indian in the Southeast. There are many ways. Native Southerners create and recreate. Um, they continue, indeed, to create vibrant and dynamic cultures and identities throughout the Southeast, and indeed, as I've written about elsewhere in diaspora. These are rich stories. They're dynamic stories. Uh, they're stories that continue to keep these various identities alive, meaningful. Now, in the 18th century, as the map on the screen um, is getting towards here, as I'm about to allude to, things do indeed begin to change and take another change, another turn, uh, in which these dynamic and adaptive qualities of southeastern uh, Native American cultures will be tested and, and tested quite, quite seriously over the coming century. The Native South, it's important to emphasize this, the Native South is a map on the move. Native people are not static. Their communities are not static. Their belief systems are not static. They don't exist as Europeans like to try and, 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 and create this sort of image of the authentic Indian. They don't exist outside of time. They very much are within history. They have a different version of history that emphasizes community and, and the cyclical nature of time and place. But they are very much attuned to the importance of, of constantly innovating and adapting and moving and shifting their identities, their communities, <coughs> sense of solidarity when necessary, responding in a creative and, and, and proactive way. That's what we see in the Native South, and that's the example that I'm going to share with you as it relates to a group of people who some of you may or may not have heard of, uh, the Yamasee Indians. That was their experience in the late 17th century uh, and 18th century. They, they the Yamasees, um, became refugees, migrants in what is roughly today uh, the border between uh, Georgia and Florida. Um, they joined a, a series of, of refugee and resettlement movements uh, that were beginning to take place over the course of the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. As the maps that I've uh, shared with you on the screen uh, attempt to indicate, these are maps that were made by uh, Jack Forbes uh, back in the 1970s. Um, Jack was a, a historian at the University of California, Davis, uh, where I received my PhD. Um, he'd retired by the time I got there, but um, he remained uh, incredibly influ influential into how I thought about uh, Native American history. Um, Jack, for, for the record, um, charted his heritage back to here in Virginia uh, and the Powhatan Indians. And what he was trying to do with these maps uh, that I've shared with you today is to indicate um, just this very point, that Native people are not static. Native people respond to the world around them uh, in very creative uh, and active ways. And so you see that in, in magnified form from the 1700s, the 18th century. Native peoples, not only in the Native South, but throughout Eastern North America, 
uh, responding and moving and resettling and recrafting uh, their communities. This is indeed uh, what the Yamasee, the people who come to be known at the end of the 17th century as the Yamasee, were engaging in. This exercising creation and recreation. Right, they're beginning to tell stories here about how they create a meaningful sense of existence for themselves, for their children, indeed, spiritual and important number in native culture, seven, uh, for Yamasee, seven generations from now. Now, at the midpoint of the 17th century, uh, refugee Indian communities began traveling across uh, what becomes, or what had become, excuse me, northern the Florida. Um, that is roughly, as I mentioned a moment ago, the borderland uh, zone of modern-day Georgia and Florida. Many of these refugee uh, communities, native southerners, uh, were fleeing violence. Um, they were fleeing disease, and they were fleeing the increased um, uh, violence of, of captive and slave raiding. Um, these are slave raids that are being conducted um, by other <coughs> native communities, other native warriors, often from the north um, and from the west, uh, the people who come to call themselves the Yamasee. Among the most violent and feared of these uh, captive raiding groups are the Chichimico Indians. The Chichimico target particularly the peoples of the Altmaha, Okutes, and Achisi chieftains, which, too bad I don't have a laser pointer, are located here in modern day Georgia. As a result of these uh, captive raids, uh, members of these three chiefdoms begin to migrate towards uh, the coast. And coincidentally, there are a number of native peoples along the Atlantic and Gulf Coast who are also moving away from the coast themselves. Right? So we've got this, this movement of peoples from the inland and from the coast, and they're moving for different reasons. Um, so the groups of people who are moving inland away from the coast are trying to uh, move away from the impacts of disease and contact with French, English, Spanish pirates. Um, those from the inland uh, fragmented communities that are beginning to emerge, they're trying to get away from these captive or slave raids that are, that are fueling the European demand for um, labor. So the Altmaha, Okute, and Achisi chieftains, um, they begin to relocate their communities uh, towards the Atlantic coastline. By the 1660s then, um, Spanish documents indicate that peoples known as the Yamasis have coalesced um, around Pocatelago, uh, which is located just uh, towards the Savannah River, just outside um, um, the headwaters of the Savannah River. They formed the Yamasees, about a dozen new towns 
This is important. Native identities that are forming, coalescing uh, during this period, are coalescing in town formations. And so these are decentralized political um, identities that are taking shape. Um, and that's very much unlike the, the more centralized chiefdom um, cultural and political societies that had existed prior to this. Um, this decentralization um, is both a strength and a weakness of native communities as they are uh, beginning to reform um, political identities, at least, over the course of the 17th and 18th century. <coughs> and as I mentioned, uh, one of the more influential groups of the Yamases uh, form a town um, uh, away from the coastline, away from the mouth of the Savannah River, not far from the mouth of the Savannah River, excuse me, um, near Pocatalaigo, uh, which some of you may know from your Civil War history, famous battle there. Um, other people who call themselves Yamases uh, seek protection among the Gaul and Macoma uh, missions, uh, who are uh, at this point in the late 17th century um, under the protection of Spanish Catholic uh, missionaries. Um, some Yamases um, seek out this protection, um, form uh, new island communities uh, under the protection of the Gaul and, and Macoma missions, but they never, to the frustration of the Spanish and the Catholic missionaries particularly, embrace Christianity. They refuse to build churches in their communities, and they absolutely refuse to erect a Christian cross. They want a diplomatic and economic relationship with these outsiders, but they don't want their religion and their cultural beliefs that they're trying to sell. And this utterly infuriates missionaries, not only at this time, but throughout the remainder of the 17th and 18th century, and does indeed continue to cause periodic tensions. By the 1680s, uh, the Yamasee communities are continue, continuing to develop, and some are continuing to move and relocate and reestablish. Again, it's because of, of, of French pirates, for example, and English slave raiding uh, along the Atlantic coast, um, taking native peoples uh, out of their, their towns and relocate, forcibly relocating them to the um, slave uh, plantations of the English Caribbean. So Yamases are experiencing a mixture here of, of, of refugee movements and uh, resettlements by the 1680s and as we move into the 1690s. Um, so some, some of these communities in desperate search for stability, um, begin, again begin to move inland into the Carolinas. Some of these communities, at least one of these communities from uh, colonial records we know, grows to about a thousand or more. So these communities are beginning to take root and they're beginning to form relationships, economic and otherwise, with both English traders and Native American traders. By 
1700, what we've seen is over the decade of the 1690s, something quite extraordinary occur. Um, the Yamasees, the people who had formed these Yamasee communities, were telling stories with their feet. They were forming new communities to evade disease, violence, and slavery. But over the decades, 1690 through 1700, the Yamasees themselves seem to have become slave traders. In 1700, for example, uh, the Yamasee provided the English in Carolina with 200 Indian slaves. By 1710, that number had grown to over 1,500. Now, there are reasons why the Yamasee might be selling other native people to the English, uh, and I can talk about those if you're interested in Q&A, and I talk more about them in the book, uh, but one of the most important rationales or explanations for this is that native people in the Southeast are not a homogenous, unified political block. They have pre-existing rivalries, and this is a fabulous opportunity to try and undercut the political and economic power of some of their rivals. Now let's move into the 19th century quickly here, uh, because this is where the story begins to really escalate uh, in a negative way for the Yamasees. The Yamasees engaged in this uh, trade in slaves begin to rack up a whole bunch of debts. They're selling slaves to the English, and they're buying manufactured items from those English traders, uh, but they can't seem to get terms of trade that get Yamasee communities out of a state of perpetual indebtedness, and those debts continue to rack up as we move through um, the 18th century. So there's a delicate economic balance that is existing here uh, in the early 18th century. It's delicate both for the Yamasees, but it's also delicate for the English. Because what we have here, the Yamasees are tied to a global economy at this point. Certainly transatlantic, but there's global dimensions to this economy in slaves and manufactured goods that the Yamasee and debt that the Yamasee find themselves, not unlike other native southerners, uh, increasingly tied into over the course of the 18th century. The English themselves are fully cognizant of this. Um, this is a quote that you see on the screen here by, uh, from George Ross, uh, a Georgia colonist who in May 1714 um, recognizes, makes the recognition that if this province, Georgia, uh, were lost, the whole continent would suffer. There's a recognition of the regional interconnectedness then of the Yamasees, the native southerners more generally, the colonists. Everyone's fate is tied up increasingly together. So tensions in this context are beginning to rise. So that by uh, the 1713, 14 period, Yamasees are increasingly expressing their frustration with the English. Uh, they're 
increasingly annoyed that they're getting ripped off by English traders, and they're increasingly upset uh, with the uh, disadvantageous terms of trade that they're experiencing. And so the gentleman on the screen here, uh, Thomas Nairn, he decides in 1714, April 1714, that he's going to travel down uh, or travel out uh, to Pocatelligo and try and smooth things over uh, with some of these influential Yamases. April 1715. Nan sits down. It's April 14th, actually, to be exact. April 14th, 1715. Nan sits down. Uh, to break bread and discuss um, the issues that are troubling Yamasee chiefs and elders. The meal was pleasant enough. Um, conversation did at times become heated. There's a lot at stake. Right? The stakes are, are quite high for Yamasees and for uh, traders uh, like Nairn, who's also acting as an Indian agent the Carolina colony. Nan nonetheless went to bed that April 14th evening, um, fairly satisfied that talks had gone well enough. Uh, some sort of understanding had been reached, uh, and we could make progress on this uh, in the following days. It's April 14th. Goes to bed the night of April 14th, see April 15th. Why? Well, unbeknownst to Nan, uh, another Indian agent, a guy by the name of John Wright, who's also in Pocatelligo uh, that April, and it's safe to say that Wright and Nan really can't stand each other. Uh, they're, they're competitive, they're constantly trying to undercut one another uh, politically and economically. And so Wright is in town that April 14th trying to undermine Nan's activities and, and, and negotiations. Um, and he's doing it though in a way that sends a shudder of absolute fear uh, and dread uh, down the spines of, of Yamasee chiefs and elders. Wright's promises to enslave the Yamasee if they don't agree to his terms. Doesn't sit well uh, with the Yamasee. So, here's what happens. Nan and Wright are dragged out of their lodgings that evening in Pocatelligo. Uh, Nan is dragged and he's affixed to a pole in the town center. Um, he's confused. He's been slapped around a little bit, so he's probably quite scared, as you would imagine. Um, gets a, probably gets a look around, tries to get his bearings. Um, he no doubt saw Wright being dragged out of his lodgings and Wright's terminated pretty quickly. Wright was killed um, with very little ceremony. Nan, on the other hand, wasn't quite so fortunate. He was, as I mentioned, affixed to a pole at the center of town, and he was tortured for several hours, at least. 
According to one English source, a great number of pieces of wood to which they set fire punctured man's body. Yes, <laughs> this was a slow, painful death which indicated the story that the Emerson are telling here is that man is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. They don't trust him, and so your physically, your body is not only going to be ended, its life ended here, but your spirit, your soul, is going to be destroyed to ensure that you cannot in any way uh, undermine or destabilize Yamasee society into the future. This incident sparks what comes to be known as the Yamasee War, and it, it, it initiates a change in colonial policy uh, among the English and a rethink among other Europeans as well, certainly in terms of um, the nature of um, slavery and, and the role of Indian slavery uh, in this region. Um, but what it does emphasize, I think, um, this particular story very clearly uh, is that towns and town elders and chiefs took the lead in negotiating with Europeans. And this remains the case throughout much of the 18th century. This decentralized diplomacy, which didn't serve the more centralized economic and political purposes of, of European colonialism very well at all, actually, um, but served uh, native southerners and their political interests reasonably well for the much of the remainder of the 18th century. Things do begin to change, and the strength of this decentralized system will begin to come under increasing strain by the midpoint of the 18th century, uh, the Seven Years' War, and through the Revolutionary War period. So much so that there's a major rethink that is beginning to go on in throughout the Native South and among Native Southerners. How do we respond to the emergence of the United States? Do we persist with a decentralized model or do we embrace some sort of centralized political and diplomatic system? To answer that question, you'll have to buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I'm happy to take questions. You, you described uh, the situation with the man, with uh, what he was thinking about, or his attitude, and when he went to bed. sources for this information? Very good question. Yeah, so this one of the wonderful things about the 18th the 19th century and even into the early 20th century is people kept diaries they wrote. Um, uh, for a historian, it's, it's much more useful than uh, this modern era. I can't imagine being a historian 100 years from now trying to uh, piece together people's thoughts uh, based on tweets, which are usually illegible anyway. Um, 
so so we have you know personal writings from Nan leading up to this event, um, and we have accounts um, from other uh, English officials who reported on um, anytime something like this happened, um, official reports had to be filed. It doesn't mean that those reports are are strictly speaking accurate, and indeed you need to read the, those colonial sources with a good deal of skepticism, as you need to ask questions about all historical sources. Um, but So we get some of our information, to answer your question directly, from those types of sources. And then from the oral traditions that have been passed down and kept alive about this story among Yamasee people, um, we also get those, those accounts and those versions of, of the story as well. So it's a combination of written and oral stories that we, we as Native, Native American historians rely upon to try and approximate uh, what the past looked like. In your introductory remarks, you talked about some of the myths around our understanding of indigenous people. I mean, you mentioned Pocahontas specifically. Yeah. Could you elaborate briefly on what some of those misconceptions are? Yeah, um, I talk a lot about this in, in, in other works, and I certainly do a lot of talking about this with my students, who probably, I think one of them's here today. Um, and has been with me all semester, so she's no doubt sick of hearing me talk about this. Um, but um, one, of the, one of the things that emerges um, throughout the colonial experience from, from very early in the 16th century is, is Europeans, um, even before they encounter native peoples, uh, have a sense of what they think they are going to find. And they're nothing short of fictions sort of drawn out of their own imaginations about what they imagine they'll find. There will be savages, um, ecological Indians, Indians, people who are in touch with nature and, and can communicate with um, wildlife and flora and fauna, for example. Um, these, these stories help European colonists during those early centuries um, give some sort of meaning and purpose to what, what they're doing. Uh, logic and rationale for what they're doing in what in most cases is an invasion and conquest um, and to sort of rationalize how these are people who exist outside of the civilized realm that is Christian realm. They're savages, they're pagans. Um, so to, to frame them in that way and then to engage in war with some of these communities is indeed just because they have been constructed as being outside of that Christian civilized norm. And you see this littered written sources from all European communities. Um, so that's some of the earliest stuff. And then it, it, the, the stereotypes and the mythologies evolve over time. Um, what I will say quickly about this in the interest of time is that um, you do see an appropriation that begins to gather momentum at various moments throughout American history that reflects uh, a longing on the part of, of European Americans to assert some sense of their own indigeneity and their own legitimacy, political legitimacy, uh, over what they are calling North America or the United States. So whether it's it's uh, dressing up as Indians and dumping Chinese tea into Boston Harbor during the Revolutionary War, whether it's uh, white Southerners during the 1840s and 50s claiming that they are the true indigenous descendants of, of Cherokee princesses 
uh, who also just happened to work these slave plantations, um, or whether it's, it's um, marketing companies in the late 19th and early 20th century who try and sell butter and soap and um, football teams by appropriating um, uh, native iconography, then we see this sort of, there's a lineage that you can chart in all of this and you can date it back as I do in my courses um, to those earliest technologies. That's a very thumbnail sketch of a very big question um, that I could go into more detail with for days. Oh, B. Uh, some of the rings like the book of uh, 1493. Well, some of the population numbers that I gave you were town-specific. So I'm breaking them down into sort of more granular rather than macro uh, figures. Um, yeah, the population figures that we have in general uh, for the Americas in total and for North America in particular, um, we still have quite substantial ranges in, in population estimates. Um, that are based on a, a number of, of factors, uh, such as archaeological evidence, um, from some of the estimates of early European contact uh, with native communities. Um, and so you will still see to this day some quite dramatic uh, macro-level estimates of how large uh, the native population of, of North America was uh, in 1491 and but what I can say about that is that populations do decline, and they decline quite dramatically uh, in the early 16th century, um, typically as a result of, it's, now it's not just disease as uh, most people usually think, although that does have a major impact, um, but it is violence. It's violence with both Europeans and the increasing violence among native southerners too, that's exacerbated uh, as a result of pressure from Europeans um, entering into the region and heightening pre-existing tensions. Um, that leads to a, an intensification of violence between different native groups. Uh, and then the impact during the 16th, uh, 17th century into the early 18th century uh, of Indian slavery. Uh, we see native people moved around throughout the American continent uh, and into the Caribbean and, and places like Cuba as well. Um, so all of these factors combined do lead to some quite major and dramatic uh, demographic changes uh, over, the, over the centuries immediately after uh, European invasion. So Greg will be in the lobby to answer any other questions that you might have. And Happily also, answer them. And also to sign copies of his new book. So Happily sign it. Right.